Well, good morning, everyone. Would you join me in opening up our Bible to Jonah chapter 4? Once again, that's page 775 on a blue pew Bible that you should have in front of you, and I uh, would love for you to just have that open and follow along with us. Uh, but before we get started, uh, it's a little bit of a bittersweet Sunday for us in that it's one of our members' final week with us. And so, Molly Michelle, somewhere in the room, can I have you stand? I'm embarrassed you for just a couple minutes, I promise. <laughs> Uh, my Michelle, uh, four years ago, uh, came from Texas. I remember, for whatever reason, having our first conversation by the side door, your first uh, Sunday leading you to marry, because everyone just leads people to marry. That's just what I, that's just what I do, and it worked out. But uh, she came up for a doctorate degree um, in clinical, uh, clinical psychology and uh, finished up that program, is going to be moving down to Virginia um, to continue an internship, kind of the last step uh, in the program, and uh, just want to kind of just highlight and spotlight her of that she just modeled well what it's looked like to really pour yourself into a church, even though it, knowing it was only for a limited amount of time, uh, that right away she made it a focus of her to join the church, become a member, become formally aligned with uh, the community here, dig deep into forming uh, really great friendships and just uh, serving the body well in a lot of ways. Uh, if you have not met Molly Michelle, you've probably heard from her in the last couple of years because she's been our meal train coordinator of getting that out to prepare meals for those who just had a surgery or just had a birth. Uh, she's been busy in the last couple of months and having to do that and has just done a fantastic job and we're going to miss her uh, for that. But as she kind of goes out uh, from grace, we uh, hope that uh, as she has served us, that we have served her well in this season, that she has been built up and equipped in her faith as she now goes down to Virginia and then joins another church and just a blessing to them. And uh, I think it's just a good reminder for us uh, that here at Grace Church, we're not just about here and what we're doing, but we want to strengthen people. So if and when they move, in, if and when they move, uh, it's bittersweet for us, but we want to bless the church uh, nationally and globally, uh, just equipping the saints who are going to go and be a blessing elsewhere. So let's just show our appreciation for my Michelle and her last Sunday here. And uh, amen. I'm just going to, if you just join me, just a short prayer for her. If you're around her, friend, just put your hands on her and just, we just bless her at this, uh, this time. Father, we thank you for your church, and we thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we thank you how you raise up men and women to uh, be the church, to be equipped, uh, to equip others, to make disciples for your glory, Father. And we thank you for my Michelle. I thank you how she has just served well in this season of her life. We pray that you would continue to strengthen her. I'm sure it's a bittersweet just week for her as well, uh, just with some of the real meaningful relationships she will be leaving behind here. Uh, but Father, we just pray that as she moves to this next chapter of her life, that she would uh, continue to glorify your name, that you would just pave the way to a faith community down in Virginia that she can pour into and join and, and, and make good friendships there, Lord, and knowing that uh, the places and the people will change, but your message never will, and that you have um, things down in her for Virginia, not just related to clinical psychology, but also to just her faith and making disciples in this world, Lord. And uh, we just give her up to you and thank you for the time that we've had with her. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past six weeks, we have uh, walked through every single verse in the book of Jonah, and you said, Pastor, we finished that last week. What are we doing in it this week? Um, and, and if you remember, if you weren't here, Jonah ended with this verse. It'll be up on the screen. Jonah 4.11. It's a question, and it was a question from God to Jonah, and he said, should I not pity Nineveh? 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And when something ends with a question, um, it's meant to be reflected upon. And so as I was studying for Jonah in this series really months ago, kind of knowing this is how it was going to end, I really just felt the Spirit impressing upon me, um, do not move too quickly on from Jonah. Don't just start another book. This one ends, this one starts. That in this ending, we need to reflect on this. And, and, and I want to lead us as a church to sit and consider this closing question and to not just make it a blog post or a class or a seminar, but in our weekly gathering to reflect together well on Jonah. Because this question, it, it gives us a glimpse into the depth of God's compassion for people specifically the spiritually lost, and, and then his deep desire for his people to proclaim grace, to warn of judgment, to lead people to repentance and saving faith. And, and so I think this question shows us that this is grasping God's compassion that leads to action. God's compassion that leads to action. And if we were to capture that phrase into even one word, I think that word is evangelism. God's compassion that leads to action. And so I want to press into that as a church because if we did a word association game here and I said evangelism and you said what, I probably would not be too encouraged by what I heard. Even what I often think about evangelism, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, there's kind of a negative word attached to it. For believers, it might be fear. It might be, I don't think it's worth it or that's valuable for those in the church, definitely those outside the church, that word evangelism, it's, it's judgmental. It can be arrogant, condescending, conceited, and, and, on, and on it goes. And so I want to take this Sunday and next Sunday to preach on evangelism, and not just big picture, try to talk about everything, but to take principles from Jonah and truths from Jonah, and what does that tell us about evangelism? And so this, these are going to be a couple different kind of sermons. It's not going to be kind of the normal flow what we do here, where you walk through a specific passage and unpack it and then apply it. Uh, but I also want to affirm, these are not just my thoughts on evangelism, that this is hopefully and abundantly rooted in God's Word, that everything I say today will be dripping from God's Word. And, and, and my goal in this, again, that began kind of months ago as God kind of started stirring me for this, is that through His Word, by the grace given to us by the Spirit, that we would capture, and for many of us, recapture the joyful burden of evangelism. Very intentional phrase, that evangelism is to be joyful, that we've been designed for this, equipped in this, empowered to do so, to be a, a means of grace through which people will believe in and trust in the living God. I mean, there is no higher calling for the believer. And it's a burden it's not easy. There's this kind of weight to it. There's a risk within it. It's not a four-point sales pitch. It can be awkward. It could disrupt some things. And so it is a joyful burden. 
And every generation of the church over the last 2,000 years has had to do this hard work, this hard but necessary work of not only understanding the message, but articulating it to the next generations, but also to a culture at a given time. And so this is really a big part of evangelism. We're not just talking about your neighbors and your coworkers and people that you kind of know, but not really. We're talking about our kids, talking about our families. It's talking about passing on the faith to the generations. And so when it comes to evangelism, I think all of us are in one of four uh, quadrants, if you will. All right, We're going to have them kind of listed on the screen. Be thinking about where are you in this, in this uh, slide, okay? Number one, you are motivated and equipped. You are motivated. You have that compassion. You know what it is. You are being faithful in getting the word out. Number two, motivated and not equipped. You have a desire, burning desire for people around you to know Jesus, but you're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know where to say it. I don't know how to do it. Number three, not motivated and equipped. If we're honest, many in the church probably fall in this quadrant. I know what I'm supposed to say. I've taken the classes and I've gone through the training, and, but for whatever reason, I'm just not that motivated to do so. There's some fear in there that's over riding it. I'm not available for people. I don't really care. That's a tough one. And then lastly, not motivated, not equipped. Don't know, don't care. Now, I want you to take a moment just to consider where would you put yourself in that slide? Where are you today when it comes to evangelism? And something that I want just churning within you over the next two weeks is what will it take for us to get to a place of motivated and equipped. And so the way I'm going to go about preaching these next two weeks is kind of, uh, kind of this week to kind of lay the foundation. If you think about building a house, you, you lay the foundation, kind of the why of evangelism, and then you put up the structure, maybe the how, how does that look? That's going to be today, the why and the how. And the next week we're going to see what does this actually look like in our life, 2019, Ridgewood, New Jersey, So it's going to be fast-paced. I encourage you to take notes. There's going to be eight principles today. More next week. If you're taking notes, write small. There's my uh, advice. And if you uh, have been around, you know my preaching. I tend to talk faster when I have more to say. Um, So I'm going to talk fast today. Fair warning. Um, But there's a lot to unpack here. Again, just from Jonah, but I hope it is fruitful for us. And so um, to dig right in, number one, First principle, as we lay the foundation for evangelism, is this. Everyone is Jonah. In the Old Testament, uh, God raised up specific prophets at particular times in Israel's, his, in Israel's history to be his mouthpieces, to, um, to stand in the gap between God and people and proclaim his word. And each prophet was, was kind of uniquely called. They were in distinct contexts and situations, talking to distinct uh, groups of people. But at their core, all the prophets, like Jonah, in chapter 1, verse 1, were called to rise, go, and proclaim. And all of these prophets, and we saw it each and every week in Jonah, that every single aspect of the prophets point to Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, the final word has been spoken. He is the greater and truer prophet. He is the final prophet. All that needs to be known is now known in Christ. And Jesus, we talked about it last week, 
was the ultimate expression of God's compassion, who laid down his life and died in the place of sinners, who now through him can be restored back to God. So Jesus is his final prophet, but that's not the end of the story, not by a long shot. You see, Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again, and as he was ascending, he empowers his people in salvation to embody that same compassion, and then equips us by his Spirit to be his hands and feet. And he gives people these words, these are famous words, I'm sure you know them, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commission was not just meant for a select few. It was not just meant for just the leaders, the really gifted ones. It is the commission that sparked the movement of the church, and all of the members of the church share in it. Uh, the Apostle Paul, a little bit later, he'll, he'll kind of use a different word just to keep illustrating this and helping us figure that out. He uses the word ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5. We in the church are ambassadors of Christ. We interact with the world, but we represent a higher authority, and we call people to be reconciled to God. And so here's why this is point number one. It's because oftentimes Christians, and I was in this camp for a long time, will let themselves off the hook by saying, I'm a believer, but I'm not an evangelist. Meaning, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And a lot of times that might be said to come across as I'm being humble, just don't have that gift, I'm not gifted that way. But if we're honest, it's kind of the self-justification to say, I never need to do it because I'm not gifted in it. And so just a moment of clarification for us that the gift of evangelism, like any gift in the Bible, is not that uh, only those who have it should share their faith, but a gifting means you are called to equip and lead others in doing so. Okay, you are supposed to lead from the front. You can teach it, you can model it, and lead the church. That is what it means to have the gift. Where are you getting that, Pastor? That sounds like your thought. I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. Um, on the screen, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he, he being the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, look, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So number one, all believers are called to evangelize. Everyone is Jonah. And you don't need to ask God in prayer whether you should do this or you can do this. I'm just telling you, the answer is yes. And I say that, hopefully this is an encouragement to you, as a pastor who has not found evangelism easy. Just not in my lane of being like natural and gifted in it. It is a struggle for me. It always has been. It may always will be. And I wish I could hide behind that excuse. Just not my gift. I have other gifts but it's just not there. That's number one. Number two, the saving word. Uh, Jonah begins with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And Jonah hears this word and he runs away from it and then God receives him back. 
forgives him, and then gives him a second chance in Jonah 3, almost verbatim. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This time a little more specific. Tell them, them being Nineveh, the message I tell you. The word I give you, you give them. Uh, Regardless of what you believe in this room, I know many of us are all across the map. Um, One of the foundational truths we can agree on is that words have meaning. Isn't that kind of weird? We say things and people understand it. And they can be very good or they can be very bad. And words together form a message. And salvation is found within God's word. So God formed the world by his spoken word. He revealed himself through his written word. And then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be his embodied word. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking about Jesus, the word personified. And the word in the Old Testament points towards, again, and finds its fulfillment in the word made flesh, in Jesus Christ. And the first words of Jesus, we saw in the Gospel of Mark way back when, his first words recorded in the Gospels says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the core aim of evangelism, to proclaim the gospel and to call people to repent and believe. It's what one pastor calls the twin graces of salvation. Repent and believe. Salvation requires both in the gospel. So you might say at this point, what's the gospel? I know what I need to do with it, but what is it? And that's another great question. You guys are asking great questions today. The easiest, I think, way to communicate the gospel, in some ways the whole message of the Bible, is through these four words. It's not everything there is to know, but it captures, I think, the real purpose and meaning of the Bible and of salvation and the gospel. And the four words are this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I think we have a graphic up there. Kind of four words. What's the Bible about? Four words that capture it. Number one, God created There's one God in three persons, and this eternal God who is and always has been is a God of love. Vanessa prayed about this morning. He's a God of justice. He's a God who is most holy, and the crown jewel of his creation is you. It's mankind. It's every man and woman because we are the only aspects of his creation that was made in his image. Number two, the fall. Three chapters into the Bible, man sinned in willful rebellion against the Creator. And this fractured not only our relationship with God, but in our interpersonal relationships with one another. And it's at the root of all brokenness that we see in the world. It's all the brokenness that we many times feel within. It's the brokenness we feel on an individual level. It's brokenness we see on systematic levels in our culture. That's the fall. Number three, redemption. God created, man sinned, Christ saved. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came in, lived a sinless life, and by his death he paid the ransom for sinners, paid in full. 
And, and the resurrection uh, is, kind of serves as the ultimate vindication because it proves he is who he said he was and that new life can be found in him alone. And then fourth, restoration. It's the final movement in history left to be seen. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and Jesus will return. And this time it won't be in a manger And the creation itself will be restored in the new heavens and new earth that will live on for eternity without sin or decay. And so um, evangelism is not just this message, right? Again, it's not this four-point sales pitch, which we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later. But it is centered on this message, and it includes a call to respond, to repent, to turn from sin, And to believe, to turn towards Christ, the twin graces of salvation. This is what connects us to the gospel. This is the message that saves. That's number two. Number three, it is an exclusive gospel. Again, we're paying attention, we're reading closely in Jonah. God's directive, Jonah 1, Jonah 3 was what? Tell them the message implying an exclusivity in it. He said, not a message amongst many, the message. It's, it's so, this is why it's so important Jonah went. This is why God pursued him relentlessly to bring him back so we could go to Nineveh. And the good news of Jesus Christ that we just walked through and the call to repent and believe, it's not a message amongst many that people can choose from. It's the message And that point has fallen on hard times all across history, but I think particularly now just recently to to make it seem like, well, there's a lot of different paths. Jesus is one path, and it seems loving to say that. And they would try to even twist Jesus' words, say Jesus didn't even really think this was one path. And somehow John 14, 6 gets erased from their Bibles. This is a really important verse. When Jesus did not mix words, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you're going to be a compassionate person, you're going to boldly be able to share that Jesus is the way. Again, this is a major hang-up in 2019 for people to handle. The the so-called exclusivity of Christianity. It's a huge obstacle. And on some level, I understand it. Like, isn't it just a little narrow to believe this is the only way? Oh, you have the truth. Nobody else does. Isn't it just that a little conceited and judgmental? Isn't that where those word associations come from? It becomes increasingly problematic because we live in a time where we know so much about so much. The capacity of just surely knowing about things is unparalleled compared to the rest of history because of the rise of the internet and this thing called Google. And you could, in seconds, right now, type in any worldview, any faith in the world and just read about it within seconds. And that's pretty awesome. But one of the things that has done is it kind of flattens out all belief systems and all worldviews, and it puts them all on the playing field in front of us that we can just choose from. And when this happens, we also realize, if you're paying attention, there's a lot of disagreement about faith and religion in the world. There's a lot of conflict that comes from it. And Christianity's not like 
apart from that. We're very much in that conflict causing some dark times, a lot of disagreement, and it has this kind of numbing effect on us. Um, Alan Noble, he wrote a book called The Disruptive Witness, probably the best book I've written so far, so far uh, not written, I did not write it, uh, best <laughs> book I've read in 2019, Disruptive Witness, Alan Noble, I'll be referring to it a couple times over the next couple weeks. Um, he writes this, quote will be on the screen, our secular age has produced an explosion of possible belief systems, all of which are endlessly contested, and all of which make the idea of transcendent God less conceivable. As a result, our beliefs are more fragile and more individual and less open to outside influence. In the past, I've used the illustration of the buffet line. You go to a barbecue this summer and you go down a long buffet line and you pick what you want on your plate and you leave what you don't. And no one can tell you, unless you're five and your mom's picking your plate, of what you should take or should leave. And you will go to your table and you'll sit across from somebody and they'll have their plate. And it's probably way different from your plate. But that's all good. You have yours, I have mine, no right or wrong. And this is the way our secular age views faith. I pick this, I leave that, you have your plate, I have my plate. That's good for you. I actually don't even have a problem with your plate, but don't you project your plate on mine. And, and, and Noble in the book talks a lot about the secular age. It's just worth the cost of it in and of itself, um, of just kind of taking a look at where we are in our culture right now. And he says over the last several decades, but especially in the last 10 years, secularism is the fastest growing religion in the United States. Perhaps you've heard this statistic, but over one-third of people under the age of 30 define themselves as nuns. That's not N-U-N, nuns. N-O-N-E, nuns, meaning no affiliation with any religion. Nothing can claim me. And it's the fastest growing religion in America. Because what's interesting is they don't claim to be atheists. That uh, rise in atheism has not grown. So it's this new category that has been coined spiritual but not religious. Agnostic. I have definitely some kind of belief in a higher power, karma, some kind of spiritual realm, but not any one exclusive God, because no one can know. And so the primary doctrine of secularism is that we cannot know for sure, and we don't find it necessary to find out. And so I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to do good in society, I'm going to promote good things in society, but be true to yourself, value your own self-worth. That is the primary doctrine. But here is what I just think needs to be called out. Um, secularism is built on an exclusive truth claim, just like faith in Jesus is. It's not possible to be non-exclusive. Hang with me here. They are saying, I know we can't possibly know who God is for sure. Do you see the contradiction? I know you can't know. And then it kind of collapses on itself because there is no such thing as either an exclusive message or an inclusive message. It's a matter of choosing which exclusive truth you want to put your faith in. And so the nuns claim to be bound to nothing. Nothing can claim me. But they are very much disciples of and religion and servants of the religion of secularism. And in my opinion, what we're seeing more and more 
is secularism is far more harsh and intolerant than Christianity. That's number three. Number four, it's an exclusive gospel, but an inclusive invite. Okay, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its exclusive message with an inclusive invite, all people in all places at all times need the gospel and by God's grace can receive it. In Jonah, the overarching shock kind of over the story was that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the most wicked and debased city in the ancient world. If there was ever a city that you would say, not only will they not respond to the gospel, but they don't even deserve the chance to. That's why Jonah ran in the first place. And so this point is simple, but it's really important. No one is outside the bounds of God's saving grace. And therefore, the church should aim to bring God's word of saving grace to everyone. Because I think we can get in our own heads here, if you're like me, where you get this kind of thought that like, you know what, there's no way that person will believe. And that is what kind of holds us back, because we think they're just too rich right now, way too successful. No way they would believe that. They're too educated. They're too smart. There's just no chance they would submit to this. Or go the other way, they are too sinful. Way too wicked. But whatever it is for you, it's too and then fill in the blank. And that's why it kind of keeps us back. And we make that decision for them. And not only does this, lack, does this expose a lack of faith, I think it can expose a lack of compassion for them. That's how I closed the uh, series last week. Do we love people enough to share about Jesus Christ with them? Jonah lacked compassion. That was the whole point of chapter 4. He did not love them enough to obey God's word, and God called them out on it. Because all people in all places need to hear the word of God, regardless of what it might cost us. Again, Jesus really picks up on this and runs with it. John chapter uh, 10, uh, verses 14 through 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And look, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Obviously, he's speaking this into a context of uh, within Israel to men and women of Jewish origin who had this thought that nobody outside Israel would ever believe this. And you know what? You and I are the people, the other people, unless you are of Jewish, Jewish descent, we have a few Jewish believers in our congregation, but for the most of us, we're Gentiles. We're those people, they would say, they would never respond. And I wonder how many of those people are in our minds when we think about evangelism. Let's keep going. Number five, the last point of kind of laying the foundation Number five, a sovereign God. Jonah ran because he couldn't see the good in God's command to evangelize. And Jonah seethed in anger because he couldn't see the good in God's grace to save Nineveh. Here's maybe the most important point of the foundation. God is never wrong. God has never had to apologize to anybody. 
God never took a misstep across history. God never got caught off guard. God has no blind spots that need to be exposed. And that is why Jonah rightly proclaimed in Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that phrase is not only the heartbeat of Jonah, it's the heartbeat of the entire Bible. It's what keeps things pumping and flowing throughout the word. That God's sovereignty over all things and his control over salvation is to be known and proclaimed and celebrated. And so we trust God and we proclaim that message. And then we pray for those in our lives, our children and and our neighbors and anybody we're around. Because if God is truly sovereign... Prayer is the most important aspect of evangelism. In the Bible, faith is both a gift and an action. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. And it's an action we are called to to put our faith in him. It's both. But God's action is always causative in the Bible. Our reaction is secondary, but both are required. And so we obey, and we trust, and we pray. These are five reasons why evangelism is something that can and should stir within us. If we're honest, many of us need to concede that we have kind of fallen off the wagon somewhere in these five points. And it's possible we've lacked compassion. And these whys have been true at every point across history. And so now we move from the foundation, the why, to now the how. We start putting the structure of this house up. What's what's this evangelism start to look like? Now it begins to change a little bit throughout church history. So now we're going to finish with three things of how. How does this look like? And then we'll pick it up again next week. Number six, principle from Jonah, asking and answering questions. So you say, okay, you convinced me why I should do this, why it's a joyful burden. How do I actually start to do it? Number six, asking and answering questions. If you're like me, there's a lot of self-pressure we can put on ourselves that along the lines of, I just don't know what to say. I don't know when to say it. And we try and map out an entire conversation before it happens in our minds. Have you ever done that? I'm going to try and figure this out even before it starts. And what happens is you turn robotic and kind of, it becomes kind of forced and unnatural. And, and to be honest, I would say most evangelism courses or training I'm not against them, but they can often get so wrapped up in having people memorize talking points. They say this, now you need to say that. Oh, and if they say this, you come back with that. And it becomes like this debate team and it trains you to win arguments. And I just think in real life, it's not overly helpful. And it is not really effective because no one's been argued into the kingdom. And the reality is a conversation never goes exactly how you planned. Because they're people, and they're, they're just conversing with you, and you can't dictate what they're going to say back to you. And so we can kind of get stuck in robotic. And I think the reality is effective evangelism requires asking and answering questions. Because an honest question will do more to expose something than a rehearsed statement. When Jonah was on the boat, when the storm came, the sailors came, and what kind of broke things open for them? They started asking questions. Remember, they hit him with like four in a row. What's your occupation? Whose God are you? Where did you come from? Of which people are you? These are questions that Jonah answered in a way that, that spoke about God, about God's sovereignty over all creation, about God's chosen people. 
And I think what it just shows us from Jonah is that we should pay attention to the kind of questions people are asking you. What kind of questions are they asking? Are you being mindful of your answer? Another book, I'm going to kind of refer to a few books in these two weeks, is uh, Rico Tice. I'll get these written out and sent out some way too. Honest Evangelism, Rico Tice. We, it's actually a class that we taught a couple years back. I think uh, one of our elders, Andy Steen, taught it. But he has these two phrases in his book, and he, he first coins this phrase, chatting your faith. Particularly when people ask questions about you or what you're doing, uh, we weave in aspects of our faith. Again, it's not rehearsed. We don't have kind of couched answers in a stiff way, but it's the idea of interweaving threads of your identity in Christ and your commitment to the church in ways that naturally answer questions. It might not lead to anything in that moment, but it could or could lead to another conversation down the road. So it's this idea of getting into the habit of going, what kind of questions are people asking me day in and day out? And how can you allow your faith to intersect in these conversations, to just be mindful of it and to start making it a habit, chatting your faith? So the questions we answer will do much to spark conversation, but even more important, I think, are the questions we ask others. At its core, asking questions is a matter of actually being interested in people. Actually being interested in their lives because we should know as believers, we really want to get to know people for who they are and not just what we project they're like. Because again, if you're like me, we often assume things about people without ever actually asking about it. We should want to get to know to hear their experiences. What do they love? What do people around you care about? What gets them going? What makes them afraid? What are some of these things that go beneath the service? And it's not this interrogation we put on people. It's genuine interest in their worldview. And the best way to get to know someone is asking good questions. And so Rico Tice, in his book, his second uh, phrase, he says, you got to learn how to cross the pain line. The pain line. Ask a question that goes beneath the surface. And it's called the pain line because it's hard to do. It's easy to stay on the surface with things, with just generic statements and cliche declarations. It's just easy to talk about sports and work on a very superficial level and to never go beneath the pain line, but you will go beneath the pain line if you have compassion for someone, a desire to go deeper. So what's a couple examples of a pain line? Um, Let's say somebody's talking to you about the NBA Finals, wrapped up this week. All right, Rochelle's very happy about that. She's like, it's been the playoffs for like six months. What are we doing here? And someone you just tell they love basketball. They love talking about it. I was just talking to a member this morning about basketball in the offseason. And maybe there should be a question like, why do you love it so much? I'm just interested. Why do you love basketball so much? When did that start? That's crossing the pain line. On a more serious note, someone's telling you about a sickness or pain that they're feeling and dealing with, maybe that of a loved one. And again, in compassion, you ask, what happens if it doesn't get better? Someone talks about how uh, just busy they are. Man, we always talk about that now. I'm just busy. Everything's so busy around here. Um, and you ask somebody, hey, how do you care for yourself to make sure you don't burn out? Make sure that your busyness doesn't drive your family apart. This is the pain line. Questions that go deeper. 
and they may or may not lead to a gospel conversation at that point. But it, again, just shows an interest, opens the door. And the last thing to note just on questions is this, um, ask to listen, not to respond. Classic communication technique. Not technique, just a statement, just a truth. We can get into a place where we're so concerned with what are we going to say to what they say that we don't actually just listen to what they're saying. And it's just an encouragement to us. Slow down. Let your mind slow down and listen and be thoughtful. God will guide your mind. He'll give you what you need to say when you need to say it. You don't need to rush it. That's number six. Number seven, embrace adversity. In order for people to be open to the gospel and the God of the Bible, they often need to first see the emptiness of whatever God they're currently serving. And everyone is serving a God in the moment, whether or not they realize it. No one is a blank canvas when it comes to worship or faith. Everyone has faith in something. Gods that they serve and look to for purpose and identity. And we saw this twice in Jonah. We saw it on an individual level with the sailors on the boat. We see it on a widespread level with the city of Nineveh. That when God was revealed to them, it first disrupted and exposed their cultural gods and idols. The sailors had no thought of God until a storm came. They were on their way to Tarshish, no thoughts in their mind, and then a storm comes, and what happens? The first verse, they each start praying to their own God. And cultural gods tend to get exposed when something goes wrong. And I wasn't really able to unpack this during the Jonah series, but a very interesting aspect of Nineveh's repentance, if you like history and care about history, is that if you read historical documents at the time, outside of the Bible, talking about or coming from the Assyrian Empire, the very time Jonah was sent, somewhere in the middle of the 8th century B.C., the powerful Assyrian Empire was in a period of distress. There was a famine around the same time that weakened its power it began experiencing some revolts and civil war from within. Meaning that part of God's timing and his relentless pursuit of Jonah was that he was going to be proclaiming to Nineveh in a time of hardship, sociological hardship for Nineveh that made it ripe for a response to the gospel. You see, adversity in life is often the appetite required to seek out and feast on the truth of the gospel. Because it's in times of trouble when cultural gods get exposed as not being able to provide comfort. In Jonah's time, it was poly polytheistic cultures, many gods, different names. Today, it might be gods of a different religion, but more often than not, in our secular age, it's the gods of money, the gods of fame, the gods of sex and comfort and power that need to get exposed for someone to be open to the gospel. Jesus taught this very thing to Pharisees when he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came, to call the righteous, not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The self-righteous Pharisees rejected Jesus as their Savior because in their mind they were not spiritually sick. They did not need anything. They did not need to be saved. You know, one of Rochelle's biggest pet peeves with me, there's many, there's many, uh, one of them is I rarely ever go to the doctor. And that's not like a personal conviction. I just hate going to the doctor. 
And I actually just went, she finally beat me down enough, and I went this last week and got a checkup for the first time in three and a half years. And my reason for her the whole time was like, I feel great. I don't need to go see a doctor. It just interrupts my schedule. It's just not worth it. Just pay a copay. Like, I just don't want to go. But admittedly, if I were to go have a medical episode this week, if I were to have a seizure, if I were to just pass out for no reason, if I were going to be doubled over in pain, you know where I'd be really willing to go? To a doctor. And I would rearrange anything in my schedule, my so-called busy schedule, because those who know they're sick are in need of help. And it's more often not than not in times of adversity in the lives of people where they will get the eyes to see the goodness of God and the emptiness of this world. Adversity um, helps believers draw deeper into the faith, and adversity helps non-believers draw close to the faith. So we, as a church, we should lean into this. We don't, we're not happy about when somebody suffers. We're not happy about adversity. We don't gloat over it. But we do need to realize that it provides opportunities to point them to something better, to Jesus. Number eight, last one. I'm being sneaky here. It's a two-for-one special. <laughs> Sacrifice self and embody grace. How do we evangelize? How does that look? Sacrifice self and embody grace. We can learn from the actual story of Jonah here. Jonah served to be the sacrifice for the sailors on the boat. For when he went overboard, it proved to be the very means of salvation for the sailors who afterwards, and the storm stopped, put their trust in the Lord. And it's this vivid picture for us. That we are called to live lives of sacrifice for the good of others. To think of ourselves less and of others more. To be in the mindset of wanting to see others thrive, even if it costs us something. And this is so un-American. But to see others thrive at the cost of my well-being, that is something we should be looking for. This is what I meant earlier when I said evangelism is not just learning a four-point message. It's a life we lead. Evangelism is a life we lead, not a message we say. And the lives of believers are always witnessing for Christ, whether that's a good witness or a bad one. You are never not a witness for Christ. And so this is the other side of the coin to the previous point. While people will experience adversity in the world, we also want them to experience grace in us and flowing from us. This is the peanut butter and jelly of evangelism. Brokenness from the world, grace from the church. Together, God uses it in a big way. And Jesus' sacrifice for us in his death on the cross not only saves us, but it empowers us to live a life of sacrifice for others. To treat people so well, to love them so much that we're willing to sacrifice our comfort, our wealth, and our time for their good. And we have opportunities to do this every single day, small ways. Occasionally we get an opportunity to do it in a big way, to be grace givers. And so to close, I'm going to illustrate of how this embrace of adversity and sacrifice of self kind of can feed evangelism from history. Um, this is a true story. In the 20-year period, from 250 to 270 A.D., a terrible plague broke out in the Roman Empire. 
a plague that was unknown at the time. Today, most historians believe it was either measles or smallpox. But at its peak, this plague was claiming 5,000 lives per day in Rome, just the city of Rome. And something happened coming out of this plague. It's something that both um, Roman kind of secular historical accounts point to and Christian accounts. That during this 20-year period, the elites in culture fled. The professors, the physicians, the politicians, everybody who had a means to do so, they were out. Evacuating Rome until this got figured out and then they would come back. Anyone who could get out did get out. Everyone except the Christians. This plague happened to coincide with one of the greatest eras of persecution against Christianity in the Roman Empire. The emperor actually blamed the Christians for the plague. And yet the Christians, who were undoubtedly dying from the same illnesses, suffering, being impacted all the same, they chose to stay in order to tend to the sick when the doctors left, to bury the dead properly, to just be there in the darkest of times. And the reason why this is notable, because if you look at history, the turning point where Christianity really started to grow happens after this plague. So if someone were to ask you, man, how did Christianity go from this like persecuted, small minority movement in the, in the vast Roman Empire, um, how did it go from just this little city in the Middle East of Jerusalem to become a global, worldwide movement? And the answer is the sovereign control of God, number one. But further, God using the witness of his church and their willingness to suffer on behalf of others. The church counting the cost of compassion for other people to show them the love of Christ. So God's call on people's lives is to turn from sin and turn towards Christ. It's the double movement, repent and believe. But what they hear from us, they should see in us. A life that seeks to give of itself. Because it's not just the message you say, it's a life you lead for Christ. So eight principles on evangelism from Jonah. The foundation has been laid. The structure has been put up. How's this begin to look? Next week, we're going to put the coverage on the walls. We're going to get a very practical look. What's this look like for you and for me in 2019 in New Jersey? Let's pray.